everybody, welcome to the Rooftop Podcast, and I'm really excited about this episode. Uh, the working title of it right now is Preventing the Next 13 Hours, and, and the reason for that is the amazing guests that I have on here uh, are the authors, the co-authors of the book Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy, uh, a cold case investigation, and it's uh, my guests are Sarah Adams and Dave Benton, also goes by Boone, which I'll probably use more than Dave. Uh, but, you know, at the Rooftop Podcast and within our community of practice, the big thing that unites us is this, this notion that we can get to better days even when institutional leadership fails, especially when institutional leadership fails, and we're facing these wicked problems, and nobody else is coming, and we have to step in and, and lead, oftentimes from the bottom up, oftentimes without titles, but to take the skill sets that we learned in our former lives and, and put them to work building mo- movements and connecting people around these hard problems. And, you know, uh, in my personal experience, we've done it uh, with the play last out. We've done it with uh, our volunteer group, Pineapple Express, but it's happening all over the country. In fact, I do kind of subscribe to what Robert Putnam says in Bowling Alone, that we are perhaps in an upswing where leaders across the country are taking these community-based strategic movements on their shoulders and stepping into it. These two guests are no exception. Uh, Their book, Benghazi, um, you know, it, the know thy enemy piece really speaks to me because what you guys have, have, have really delved into here has not been done. So Boone, Sarah, welcome to the Rooftop Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It's really good to have you here. Um, I think what we'll start with is we're going to, we're going to cover some, some ground today. So get ready. Um, I would suggest you get your notepads out, some pens, because we're going to go deep. I just, I, we already have, and we haven't even started filming. Uh, and that's a good thing. We're going we're gonna to talk about the stuff that you probably have not heard, didn't know about, not just Libya, but what's happening around the world and how this ties into it and how, you know, if we don't learn the lessons from the Benghazi event, we are doomed to repeat them. So with that, what I thought I would do is maybe we kind of start with backstories. Uh, Boom, why don't we start with you? Just tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your journey and, and how you got to where you are now. Yeah, there's really not a lot to me. I'm a Catholic boy from the Midwest. Um, grew up in Ohio. Good family values, um, faith-based. Um, looked up to the military, played G.I. Joe, wanted to be in the military. Graduated high school, ended up going to the military, spent some time in law enforcement. Um, right after 9-11, I ended up working for an intelligence uh, community and stayed there for about 12 years. Best memory of that time as an operator? Best memory. Yeah, what's your best? Like, what's what sticks with you to this day? Like, what the the, the brotherhood, the camar- yeah. the camaraderie of the guys. That's me too. Yeah, yeah, that's me too. People are like, "Do you miss the army?" I'm like, "Nope, <laughs> I don't." <laughs> but I do miss the, I do miss the the brotherhood and the sisterhood. Yeah, well said, uh, Sarah. How about you? Yeah, I mean, similar upbringing. I grew up in the Midwest. So yeah. it must be a trend. Um, small town, Upper Peninsula, Michigan. So I'm a youper. Um, I never thought of working for the government, actually. Really? I wanted to work in international business and travel the world. That was what my degree was in, in undergrad. And then when I finished the degree, I was like, oh, you can't just jump into this industry. So I went and got a master's in international relations. Even then, I never thought of this career, but I had done my graduate thesis on Kashmir. So when I went to look for jobs, I couldn't think of anywhere I could get a job where my focus was Kashmir besides applying to the CIA. Yeah. So yeah, so I applied to the CIA and got in and the rest was history. Yeah, and both of you are super, super humble. There's so much that you're not saying, but we're not going to dive into it. But suffice it to say, 
uh, the old been there, done that, got the t-shirt. These two definitely qualify for that and then some. And, you know, we're going to kind of, I think, we're going to focus on Benghazi, obviously, to kick this off. But if it's okay, I want to kind of take a targeting strategy of working macro to micro. Yeah. Um, but but to, to set it up, maybe each of you could kind of give just a little bit of a contextual overview of the attack on 9-11-2012 that happened when we lost the ambassador and, and three more brothers in that attack. And, and it was just such a, such a terrible event in our history. Um, if you could just kind of give your own perspective of that, your relationship to it, to the degree that you feel comfortable, so that we can set up the rest of the conversation. So why don't we start with you, Sarah? Yeah, so my relationship that day is very small. I woke up about five in the morning in Benghazi. You were working in, in Benghazi at yes, that time. Yes, yeah. and I was going to the airport so that everyone else had to get up at five in the morning in Benghazi and bring me to the airport. And so they all got up super early, which I still feel guilty to this day because then they spent all night fighting, as you can imagine. Um, so they brought me to the airport. I flew to Europe. Um, and then I did not find out about the attacks until five in the morning the next day. Wow. So, yeah, when I was up in Europe, I did call them when I finally got settled in my hotel for the evening. It was about 12, 12.30 at night in Benghazi, and Boone answered, and he was on the roof, but I had no idea. But then there's a little bit of a commotion, and he's like, hey, I'm busy right now. I can't talk, but I'm safe. And I thought maybe he could have been in, like, a car accident or he was playing video games. That was more my assumption, like, oh, he's playing video games, whatever, I'll talk to him tomorrow. And I went to bed, and then when I woke up at five in the morning, my iPad was filled with messages from my mom, who, like, is not that type of person. And I was like, whoa, this is crazy. And there was, like, 50 messages asking me um, if Boone was okay, because my mom luckily knew I had left Benghazi that morning. And so that was kind of my first intro and so I started calling everybody I knew in Benghazi and all the phones were dead and so I was freaking out and then finally um, Tig, so John Tegan, answered oh. the cell phone and he was the first person I talked to. And what was, let me, get, let me go to Boone now, so when you got that call from, from Sarah and you're up <laughs> on the roof, what's kind of going through your mind just in, in that moment with the call? Like, well, mean, With the call, obviously we were focusing on the yeah. threats at the time. Yeah. Um, so I was really focused on what needed to be done next. And I assumed because of where she was and who we worked for that she would actually be read in and understand what was going on. So I wasn't dismissing her. I just didn't have time to talk about it. And I assumed she probably knew more than I did anyway. Yeah, amazing. And what I have to ask, when you, when you realized like what was actually happening, what's going through your mind? Well, it was crazy because... Um, Tig told me briefly, then Boone got on and they walked me through, and then we were going into the embassy where I was, and our deputy chief of station was there, and then our analyst in station, and I told them, and they had no idea. So then we walk into the embassy, and nobody in the embassy knew the ambassador was dead, and I was the only one. So I was like, well, I'm not going to tell anybody, because that's not my role. But they were all saying, oh, we're trying to find him. We hope he's alive. And I was like the only one that knew he was like passed away. So it was wow. like this really uncomfortable um, thing, right? Because it was all his yeah. coworkers and I had to kind of pretend I didn't know something. And then, but they were so nice to me in, in, in that embassy. They brought in like grief counselors, like all the women gave me like these little care packages of beauty products. So I knew I, all my stuff, like I didn't have anything, right? Because all my stuff had been in the buildings that were attacked. So they treated me really good. And then the next day I went back to Libya. 
Right. Wow. Um, can you talk a little bit about the, the time leading up to, I mean, the, the focus is always on the actual attack and, and, and I think that's important, but I think that's probably been established. What I'd like to focus on is what was really happening leading up to the attack versus what we were told was happening or, you know, we saw in the media or the news. So actually in Benghazi at that time, um, there was an increasing threat and a lot of the other countries already started pulling out. Um, the Red Crescent even pulled out. The Brits were hit earlier. They pulled out. So progressively, it became worse and worse, more attacks. It became more violent. So the writing was on the wall. Um, something we didn't have was specific intelligence saying, hey, on this day, this attack's going to occur. Right. But for us on the ground, it wasn't a matter of, you know, is it going to happen? It was when is it going to happen? Right. Yeah, so there, there was an imminent knowledge that it was, it was going to go down. Absolutely. Okay. And, and what about you, Sarah, from an intel and targeting perspective? Um, what, was, what was brewing? Yeah, so I had spent the first part of the year over in Tripoli. But even while I was in Tripoli, all the terrorists were mostly coalescing in the east, you know, in Benghazi yeah. in a city called Darna. So I was kind of chomping at the bit to get over to Benghazi because it's like, that's where the terrorists are. So I'd been in Benghazi, gosh, maybe not even a month when the attacks kicked off. And so I was doing a whole lot of like, we need to collect more on Al-Qaeda. We need to improve our collection on Al-Qaeda. We don't have the details we need on Al-Qaeda. So I was actually afraid that we actually had this like huge gap that we weren't going to be able to overcome in time. I did not know an attack was happening so quickly, but like Boone said, we knew an attack was going to happen just because in the city it becomes so extreme, like the black flags were going up all over. As Boone tells a lot of people, the black flags were going up in the nice neighborhoods, right, where the people are were moderates, right? So we watched kind of Al-Qaeda and its ideology, like, spread through the city and camps were popping up everywhere. So it was pretty scary at the time. So let's set the context at a macro strategic level. Um, you know, for some of the folks watching, I know this um, seems kind of odd, but it's true. I mean, a lot of people that watch and listen nowadays, particularly some of the younger folks, don't really have a lot of memory of the war on terror or the artist formerly known as the war on terror. You know, I mean, <laughs> um, they, I mean, it was our young, it was our adult life, right? And, right. and, but, but during this time, the 2012 uh, arena, um, what are some of the big world events that are happening um, between, you know, the NATO forces, the U.S. versus uh, this, this enemy called Al-Qaeda? What's, what's kind of going on at a high level in the, in the world that's shaping the events in Benghazi? We certainly know that, that Gaddafi was overthrown in Arab Spring, but kind of set the stage for us at a, at a, at a macro peace level there. Well, the interesting part is if you look at it from the world or like the U.S. government and the policy, they were believing Al-Qaeda was on the run. Yeah. They basically Al-Qaeda was defeated. Al-Qaeda, though, viewed it very, very different, right? We have this failed state of Libya. We're going to go and we're going to create a base. They chose Benghazi as the city that created a basin. That was obviously a huge intelligence gap. The U.S. government didn't know that. Um, so Al-Qaeda kind of capitalized on the fact that we were fatigued from counterterrorism. We were trying to get out of the counterterrorism fight. They were playing the long game. Yeah, and they knew that we weren't going to stay. We weren't focused on terrorism. We were focused on the, the political things, right? How is the government of Libya going to form, right? Like, how are they going to secure their oil facilities? 
Um, illegal immigration through Libya was Libya's biggest problem at the time. Terrorism was maybe like fifth on the list. They had some, they had, there's a city called Kufra. They had some big um, tribal conflicts. They had a lot of conflicts down in the south between like the Touareg tribes. Like Libya had a lot going on besides terrorism. And the thing you have to remember is there's just this revolution that happened. So in Libya, everyone who fought in the revolution, they viewed, hey, you're heroes. So the terrorists actually became kind of heroes in the country too. So it's almost hard to say he's a bad guy because they're like, oh no, he took out Gaddafi. And it took many, many years for Libyans to realize the good from the bad and do something about it. And I, and I think it's so unfortunate this has happened in so many countries, you know, in the Middle East. When you look at the mandate that Al-Qaeda has, you know, from bin Laden and beyond to, to usher in these uh, these Islamist regimes in places that are at risk, in places that are undergoverned. I mean, they, they go in, they exploit that at a local level, and they establish themselves, and they set up shop, mm -hmm. right? And, and this is something, if you look at AQIM, and, and you brought, both of you brought this up, not a lot of people paying attention to, to the Maghreb and what was going on during mm -hmm. that period. Everybody was focused on AQI in Iraq, and, but, but wasn't AQIM, weren't they known for their ability to source foreign fighters and suicide bombers and put them into the pipeline? Weren't, weren't they origin countries of that? Yeah, and actually a lot of people don't understand. AQIM was the pipeline for Iraq. Yeah. So the funny part is, is a lot of our attackers were going to go fight in Iraq. And so they go into the AQIM pipeline and then they did training with AQIM. And then they're like, oh, wow, I like AQIM better. I'm not going to Iraq. So half of our attackers went and fought in Iraq and half of them stayed AQIM and did stuff in Algeria, Mali, et cetera. But yeah, they were the pipeline. With a fervent belief system, many of them willing to blow themselves up, kill themselves. Um, and, and then half of them, you say, cut their teeth in combat in Iraq mm -hmm. and then return. Correct. Okay. So Boone in, in the, in the, in all of everything that I'd seen prior to, to cutting into the book and getting to know Sarah, it seemed that everything that was presented about the, the circumstances surrounding Benghazi was that it was almost like a, a grassroots movement in the streets, right? That it was, it was this spontaneous flashpoint you know, to um, to strike out against whether it was perceived colonialism or whatever, but it, it, it had this militia type feel to it. Mm -hmm. But when I when I look at y'all's work and what you've put forward, and frankly, I mean, a lot of us thought this anyway going into it, is that's not necessarily the case here. There was a lot going on that was very deliberate, very intentioned that could be walked back to Al-Qaeda. Is this true? It's absolutely true. We actually knew that night that it was, in fact, a terrorist attack. And when I say we, not only us on the ground, but the U.S. government actually knew it was a terrorist attack. Um, why they chose to go forward with the narrative that they did, I can't answer that. I don't know. The problem with Benghazi is that there's nothing to hide. Everyone wants to make it a conspiracy theory. There was no conspiracy until they started going on talk shows and pushing a false narrative. But we knew from that night that, yes, it was, in fact, a terrorist attack. They weren't a ragtag militia. They were very well trained, very well coordinated, and it took a lot of planning to execute this. It was actually probably the second largest um, al-Qaeda attack on U.S. soil since 9-11. Wow. And how ironic that it was not ironic, was it? It was, mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's intentionality in the, in the date that was chosen. Um, 
So Sarah, you know, add on that from a, from a targeting perspective to what Boone just said. I mean, a lot of these, um, according to what you've researched and found and profiled with these terrorists, they, they brought them in. They, they, they brought, these were players. These were pipe hitters. They brought these guys in from all over. Yeah, I mean, the thing that gets lost a lot about Benghazi is it was basically put into motion by the head of Al-Qaeda, and it was so important to him that he tapped into all of his old networks. So he went back to terrorists that he had known for 30 years and now, who said, are we talking make about this here? happen. So Dr. Ayman al-Zawahiri. Yeah. So when you go through our book, you're going to see Zawahiri, 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 because it was that important to him. The other name that you're going to hear a lot is Zarqawi from Al-Qaeda in Iraq, because he had very close relationships. The people who fought for him loved him. And they went on then to now be the leaders a decade later in Al-Qaeda. So those are the other names you're going to see pop up. So we, they are completely historic, and very trusted Al-Qaeda networks. And think about it. They had over 150 attackers, and they did not leak. That's how tight and trusted this network was. Yeah, and to correct me if I'm wrong, but um, in your work, you identified that, that Zawahiri was extremely pissed off about uh, Al Libby being killed. Correct. Right, and and Libby's his origins were the Maghreb, was it not? Yeah. yeah. So yeah, that was basically for people's background. Um, at the time, Zawahiri's deputy was named Abu Yakya Al Libby. In June of 2012, he was killed in a drone strike, and so when he was killed, that's when Zawahiri said, personal. "Yep, we're going to attack the Americans in Libya in his honor." The interesting part is, though, it was decided to kidnap the ambassador in his honor and get more terrorists released for, for, you know, for the loss of Libby, and that's what they were focused on. So he had his hands all over this thing. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, and, and, but interesting that the original plan was to kidnap him. Correct. So it, it, was this simply lost in translation or just a tactical operation gone bad? They couldn't get into the building that yeah. the ambassador was in. They tried smoking him out, and then they ran out of time because the rescue force came. Yeah, wow. Um, any other, I mean, what are your, I don't, I'm not asking you to speculate on the, on the narrative change, but, it, you know, it just bothers me that there, there, there was this overt um, narrative put forward that was simply not true. Anybody involved in this, even on the periphery, knew it wasn't true. What are the, I mean, and this just keeps happening, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it happened in Afghanistan. It just, it just keeps happening where politicians and bureaucrats and policymakers, and I hate to say it, but even the senior leaders in the intelligence and military communities are starting to do it. Mm -hmm. You know, what is the danger when you start to change the narrative like that of what's actually happening on the ground and you call it something else for political ends. Yeah, I mean, at least in our case, lying about it led to probably over 10,000 more deaths. So a lot oh of people God. don't realize that, but our 150 terrorists went on to do attack after attack after attack. And um, just in Libya alone, during the second Libyan war, which was a battle with our terrorists, 20,000 Libyan civilians died. Uh, we had Americans killed by our attackers in Algeria after our attacks, in Mali after our attacks, in France after our attacks. So not calling them terrorists allowed them and even gave them agency and even made them kind of maybe like 
a little more prolific to go and carry on other attacks and to never be watch listed and never have authorities go after them. And so they had freedom of movement, right? They could travel where they wanted. Nobody was after them. So we're going to come back to this, but I, I think we, you've already kind of shown the football and it's important is because uh, a lot, largely because of this was being sold as, you know, a spontaneous event, a protest, whatever you want to call it. Those perpetrators were not watchlisted. Is that accurate? Yes, that was very and they're accurate. they're still not. Yeah, they're still not watchlisted. We've had a few watchlisted here and there just because of friendly people. Like one of our main attackers, someone watchlisted him in Turkey for us, and he did get captured this summer, but got released, right? Because there's no political impetus to keep our terrorists locked up, sadly, by our own government. What are the other repercussions of this, Boone, when you think about like the, the way that this narrative was altered? that you've seen just in the course of your journey? Like, what are some other bad outcomes from that? Well, like, like Sarah mentioned before, some of these well-known terrorist attacks in other countries were a direct result because we didn't bring them to justice. Because of policy, we failed to actually go after these terrorists, and we allowed them to commit more acts of terror. You know, if we ignore that, it's gonna happen more often. It'll happen in other countries, which it has. Pretty soon, it'll come right back to the United States, and we'll see another 9-11 again. If not worse. If not worse. Um, one other thing I just want to hit in your book, you talk about that really the, 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 the propensity to, to prosecute this attack, it was potentially made easier by some of the policies and, 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 and the ways that the United States was navigating its actions in Benghazi leading up to it. Can you talk a little bit about that at a high level? Yeah, I mean, one of the big problems, we still have a failed policy in Libya we ended up aligning with the government that is on the same side of the terrace. So I know that's a what? little bit confusing. Do we, do we do that? Yes. Have we ever? <laughs> Sorry, inner monologue. Please continue. So if we just talk about the consulate, for example, and you talk about the security that was paid to protect the consulate, they were the terrorists. Yeah. So it's like a huge insider threat, really. Big time. That's kind of how you should maybe train it, right, to people. So, yeah, yeah they were basically attacked by the old, the people paid to protect them, right? And it's the thing is, at the end of the day, the U.S. can be on the side of terrorists. The terrorists never want to be on the side of the U.S. or NATO, and they will turn around and bite us every time. We forget that over and over again. And so in Libya now, we're backing the government who is on the side of Al-Qaeda, and we're constantly having problems. Just last week, they um, released a whole cell of Hamas fighters. Um, we had brought up this same cell in our book because a couple of the individuals involved in our attack were also in this Hamas cell. Right. So it's just th this constant fail policy that is allowing the terrorists to go on and commit these acts. I love how you guys do this. <laughs> Like, they are on full display yes. right now. And we got baseball cards. Do not piss off Sarah Adams and Boone. <laughs> That's a note to self. Yes. Uh, Boone, I want to ask you a question, and I want to bring it tactical for a second, only because, um, you know, you and I have tread a lot of the same ground, and, and I think there are a lot of similarities in the mission sets that we did. Particularly, I'm, I'm interested in um, the the fact that the, the host nation was was – largely responsible for perimeter security and 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 in the well-being of your folks um yet you know they they weren't 
responsible uh, or they weren't uh, good stewards of that security. In other words, they either allowed bad stuff to happen or even participated. How did you handle that as a guy on the ground in the inner perimeter, right, who's ultimately responsible for everybody's security, having to depend on a partner force that you know is unreliable, that you know bad things are in the works, What's going through your mind? And I only ask because we have a lot of Green Berets, young Green Berets that watch this. They're going to find themselves in that boat, invariably. What's going through your mind? Kind of what are some of the things that you're clicking through uh, as you're navigating the day, knowing that those guys are out there, but not sure which way their weapons are trained? Yeah, for us, we never uh, trusted um, 17 Feb in the first place. We always thought that they probably didn't have our best interests at heart. Yeah. So we didn't rely on them. Yeah. So a lot of it was on us, and we provided our own internal security um, with an eye on uh, 17 Feb the entire time. But that night, very chaotic. We didn't know who was who. Yeah. Same thing with daily operations in the city. We don't know who's who, especially in Libya, to where um, one faction controls the roads. Another militia controls this neighborhood. Right. So we were always on the offensive, if you will, to where we knew we could rely on us, and that was it. Um, as far as the um, concern of having a host nation control security for a consulate, um, a U.S. embassy, a lot of people don't know it's actually the host country's responsibility to provide security for a consulate yeah. or a U.S. embassy, because a lot of questions we get is, where were the U.S. Marines? Right. U.S. Marines aren't supposed to protect U.S. embassies. Right. They protect classified information right. inside embassies. Um, so we didn't have that luxury, but something we did have was an SST team, an SF-SST team, prior to Feb 17 taking over, which, going back to policy, was removed. So one time, we actually had reliable Americans, a large force that we could rely on, but they were taken from us. Yeah. Well, we'll talk about more, more about that when we get back. Uh, appreciate everybody uh, sticking with us here. This is fascinating. We're going to take a little break, and we'll be right back with Boone and Sarah. All right. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to part two of my interview on the Rooftop Podcast. Uh, with Sarah and Boone, uh, we're talking about Benghazi. We've talked a lot about Benghazi, and we're stepping through uh, just different elements from their book, Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy. And one of the things I was saying right before the break is, is I absolutely love the way that you have identified and really put together some very, very nice uh, targeting packets <laughs> on the perpetrators of this attack. And I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about that, what your rationale was behind in doing that, and, and how this might serve uh, targeting operations and, and, you know, pursuing justice uh, in the future. Yeah, I mean, we obviously never planned to write a book. We started an investigation, so we set different standards for our personal investigation, right? So we wanted to identify first the attackers at the consulate, since that's where they mostly were. So. They had to be there, we had to have their photo, we had to have their true name. So just as an investigation, we collected these things. Then when we realized, hey, we need to now not have this locked in our files and we need to share it, how do we share it without getting in trouble, right? Because we want to share it with maybe someone in Egypt or Algeria or Italy, I don't know. So then that's when we decided to put it into a book form and then because of the people we would want to have access to it, we viewed it as targeting profiles 
and wrote the book to where if someone only cared about one of our attackers, they could pick it up and like understand that attacker and don't have to know anything else about Benghazi. Like if he's an attacker now in Nice, France, right? Like they can be like, okay, now we know his background and that's the way we wanted to do it. I think this is such an example of what, what I talk about with just that, that ground level leadership when nobody's coming. I mean, like this is such a pure example of it, Boone. And what are some of the outcomes that you've seen from this work since that you, you all have put the book out there? So there is a, um, a lot of interest in a lot of the attackers in other countries. And we, we were able to have some success in a few different countries with some of the attackers with foreign governments. So there is interest there. Um, as far as the U.S. goes, we haven't had any success because of our current administration, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, but we, we've seen small success here and there. But you're staying after it. And... Um, one of the things that uh, you mentioned, Sarah, when we were chatting off camera was that there's a lot about these folks that you know that's not in the book mm -hmm. for reasons of sources and methods and um, other sensitive things. What would you say to anyone um, watching this globally who is in a position to engage these guys if they wanted to reach out to you all? Yeah, so we have basically created like a free photo lineup to start. So like if you have detainees, if you have assets, heck, if you're working the security line at an airport and you have a Libyan you want to have a conversation with, you could set these photos in front of them, right? So we made that as like a first free tool and we share it on like on my personal LinkedIn and then on our Instagram. But then if there is a terrorist you're interested in, we have case files, right? The book is just a small truncated version. So we might have his phone number. We might have his email address. We're obviously not going to put it in the book because we don't want random people calling our terrorists on the phone, yeah. right? But we do have targeting information that we have forwarded, uh, uh, you know, as Boone kind of alluded to, to foreign governments and to other people looking at them. And we can provide that those details if we have it. And we will. Wow, that's amazing. Um one of the other questions uh, that I wanted to ask on, on, on the profile of these terrorists as well is what would, okay, I know this is obvious, but I, I want to ask it. Why is this such a passion for each of you? Because I think it's important for our viewers and listeners to know that. I think I know, but I, I just want to hear it from you at a personal level. Why is this such a big deal? So for me personally, it's all about justice. Yeah. You know, that, that's my main focus is justice. That's your why? That, that's my why. Yep. Okay. And for me, I mean, it's personal because, you know, Bob and Roan were our friends. And I know both of them well. And if, if we would have been the two that passed away, for example, they would have done this for us. Right. And I think anyone who is obviously involved in a U.S. attack and they're American deserves this kind of investigation. It doesn't happen. So we wanted to do it in their honor and then hope we can stop these terrorists from doing it to any more Americans. Yeah, I just think that's such a noble thing. And just, again, so indicative of when we see that nobody's coming, that you can step in and, because, and, I mean, you all have done this uh, just by using your own prowess and your own contacts and your own relationships, right? I mean, that's what it's taken to put this together. Yeah, I mean, we self-fund this. So if anyone's seen our book, I mean, this isn't a cheap investigation, right? No. This is not easy to do. Um, Obviously, we have to run it in a foreign country, 
we have to protect people in a foreign country. Right. We have to surveil people in multiple foreign countries. So yeah, th this takes a lot of resources. I have not been on a vacation in years because every extra penny goes to finding something new on a terrace. Well, I hope you get one at some point. I mean, <laughs> yes. You deserve it after all this work. Um, <laughs> what would surprise people? So it's so, what strikes me a lot of times with, with national security issues to include the, the, the tragedy in Benghazi is that it seems like the country, our country turns the page really fast. You know, we turn the page on some, oh, that's too bad. And we turn the page and we go on to see what the Kardashians are doing, <laughs> you know, and um, I think that's just a very dangerous endeavor, a very dangerous proposition. And one of the things that I've found that is, is often helpful is, is when I have um, experts like you and more importantly, just good humans like you who have run the miles. I ask, what, what would surprise people about these terrorists and the work that you've done around, you know, bringing them to justice? What would surprise people who don't work in this world? They, they, they see this and they're like, oh, wow. Like, what would stop them in their tracks there, if they knew? There's a list of things that would surprise them. Um, one from a fake mastermind, like Abu Katala being the mastermind, which he wasn't. Um, two, just the relationships and how far back these terrorists go and the different networks that were utilized to make this operation happen. Yeah, and you've already said, and you say it in the book, is that this was not some spontaneous uprising. No. This was a coldly calculated international terror attack honchoed by the leader of Al-Qaeda. Is that accurate? Yeah, no, that's accurate. And I think if we want to like go further into this question, it's the fact that the terrorists have gotten really smart and they know how to use our weaknesses against us. So one of the things that I think would surprise a lot of people, for example, is two of the families of our attackers, once our attacker was killed in Libya, they have been able to use the U.S. court system to sue the, the individual named General Haftar, who basically went after the terrorists. So, they're, so terrorists are misusing our court system. Secondly, wow. if you, you know, Boom brought up the fake mastermind, Abu Qatala. Well, the main witness the FBI used in his trial, he covered up the fact that five members of the mortar team, so it was a 10-man mortar team that struck us at the CIA annex, five of the members were his family. So basically, we paid a guy to cover up half the mortar team, and he lives in the United States. Wow. And, and we actually have a major problem with that, right? Because he's now a threat to us. We put out this book. We didn't know his family members were the ones that attacked us. He knows we're hunting the terrorists. Now we know he knows we're hunting his family and he lives here. So he now is a threat to us, our families, the rest of the personnel in Benghazi, and it's very dangerous. Absolutely, wow. Um, what else? What about uh, anything else in terms of the, uh, the watch list or anything like that that, you, that would, would surprise people? Well, I mean, I think it's the, the fact, fact that they're not on it. Yeah, they're not on it. Um, you know, if we could do maybe like a, kind of one of those Kevin Bacon things. Yeah. So Six degrees? Yeah. Let's, let's do that. Let's do it. Let's do Six it. Six degrees it's, of Benghazi? It's going to be a little painful, but I'm going right. to walk through it for you all. So when we just look at our attackers, there's a lot of families involved, right? So there's one family called the Azuzas, right? So when you talk about that last name, most of the people who've ever looked at terrorism know a really famous terrorist named Abdul Basit Azuz. So his cousins were our attackers. 
his basically brother-in-law was Sufyan Benkumo, who a lot of people know. He was a famous Guantanamo Bay detainee. He sent attackers to us. He, his real last name is Al-Hasadi, okay? An individual named Al-Hasadi had a terrorist group that was um, one of Al-Qaeda's terrorist groups in Libya called Abu Salim Martyrs Brigade. Yep. So he also sent attackers to our attacks. Now, here's where it all comes together. All these terrorists did our attacks and then they move on and go other places. So Al-Hasadi, for example, basically runs the Libyan embassy in Malaysia. And since 2011, Al-Qaeda terrorists have been able to get Libyan documents and passports and visas from the Libyan embassy in Malaysia. So we have said in the book how you could get real Libyan passports if you're a terrorist. And we even brought up how one German terrorist of ours, he was a Turkish German, had a Libyan passport. Wow. We talk about how obviously that's a fear now in Afghanistan. Obviously, out of Turkey, there's been fake documents. And, and now we bring up Malaysia. So it's like this... Al-Qaeda is international, right? Like people only think of Al-Qaeda as like the fighters. Al-Qaeda has, gosh, travel agencies around the world. They make millions of dollars in Hajj travel, but it's not even to make the money. It's so they have access to the travel documents in all these countries, right? There, there's men working at embassies all over the world. They're on Al-Qaeda's payroll. They have been for 20 years. So they're in the core of like the entire world, they're all over Europe and nobody's doing anything about this network that they've established to move people around. So I wanna just build on that at a global level. I mean, we've, we've seen intelligence assessments coming out of our country that say Al Qaeda is not a threat anymore. <laughs> I mean, Boone, what do you, what do you, I can't even say, dude, I can't even keep a straight face and say that. Like, what are your, what's your take on that? Right. Yeah. It's all politically driven. Um, why? I don't know, but it's, it's a mistake. You know, we heard before Al Qaeda's on the run, Al Qaeda's finished, where in fact they're actually thriving and growing right underneath our noses. But as you know, policy drives intelligence. So yeah. if we're not looking for, you know, certain intelligence, we're not going to see it. You want to build on that? I mean, Al-Qaeda today in Afghanistan is bigger than Al-Qaeda was on September 10, 2001. And anyone saying that that's not true is lying to you, right? The problem is people are fatigued with Afghanistan. So Al-Qaeda's decided, let's go back, make Afghanistan our new base, just like they wanted to make Libya the base in 2011. Well, the U.S. policymakers want to be done with Afghanistan. The news media is tired of Afghanistan. So Al-Qaeda has been able to, for the last two years, expand exponentially because nobody wants to focus on them. No one wants to talk about them. And they're completely taking advantage of that weakness of ours. Well, I think that's probably a good place to land for the second segment. And what I will end on is we may be done with Afghanistan, but something tells me it's not done with us. <laughs> So we'll be right back for our final segment. Okay, hey everybody, welcome back to the Rooftop Podcast. This is our third and final uh, um, episode, part of this episode um, and how we can try to prevent the next 13 hours from happening. And hey, you know what? Um, not the last conversation, though. That's something we agreed to here. There's so much in this. And, and I know that, that most, if not all of you, 
dialed into this podcast, this is the kind of content that you like to go deep on. And we're, I know I'm learning so much from this. The, the book that we're really talking about is Benghazi, Know Thy Enemy, um, Sarah Adams and Dave Boone Benton, A Cold Case Investigation. This is a really good Christmas present, you know? I mean, because there's so much in here that not only lets us look back at a, at a, some, a wrong that was done, and, and it lays out a solution for, for writing it, but it also gives us insights into the future. And that's what I'd like to talk about for um, the rest of this segment is what does this mean? And I, and I think my first question, sir, I'm going to start with you and then Boone, I'm going to come to you with the same question, but there's a lot of injustice in what happened uh, on September 11 in Benghazi. What needs to happen to set this right? Well, I mean, I think one of the things that needs to happen is the U.S. government needs to at least go after one of the real attackers on the ground. I know that sounds crazy, but the people in Benghazi feel like nobody has brought any justice at all, right? Like, even when we've tried to highlight when one gets captured, it's like, go meet with him and ask him some questions. And our government's not even doing that. They're not even sitting down with the ones captured in other countries. Even right after the attacks, we did have a senior terrorist detained in Turkey. You know, U.S. government didn't ask for him. He got released. Of course, he ended up in Iraq and Syria, and we ended up killing him um, in a strike. But between that time, he killed numerous people to include two assassinations of um, senior leaders in Tunisia, like affecting their entire formation of their government, right? So, yeah, it's... And they killed an ambassador. Yes, I know. Well, people, like, for some reason, they didn't kill enough people in Benghazi, or for some reason, people think we were giving weapons to Syria, which we weren't. Remember, John McCain was begging at the time, but nothing was approved. People either think we deserve it or they think we didn't have enough people killed, which is crazy. It's just insane. Yeah, I don't understand it at all. Like, And remember, they got away with killing an ambassador and attacking a CIA base. Base, right. I, I just I can't get my head around it. Anything else that, I mean, so heard, loud and clear, uh, anything else from your perspective that needs to happen to, to, to right this wrong? Yeah, I mean, another thing that needs to happen is Give some money to the FBI investigation on this, FYI. We want to put bounties on these terrorists. Um, and there's bounties on none of our attackers. And they're in places, obviously, where they could be caught. A government would capture them to collect the U.S. bounty. So that's something we'd like to have happen. You know, another thing is we've had a lot of people since the book came out that did work Benghazi over the years and they have told us some very alarming things, right? So the politics have gotten too involved in the intelligence community to where they weren't even allowed to collect on Benghazi. When they did collect information on our attackers, they got pushed back from their leadership. Um, I've had people cry in front of me that they didn't step up um, and push in their organizations to do this. So they've actually harmed their own employees by not letting them go after the attackers. Because remember, a lot of these people, especially in the CIA, they had worked with Ronan Bub like we did, right? They were in war zones protecting CIA officers, and now CIA officers can't even look into the terrorists that killed their friends, and that affects people. And, and, and Zawahiri had a, had a track record <laughs> of going after CIA officers. Yeah, to include, Zawahiri was a part of the whole ruse for the Coast, coast. Base Absolutely. attack. Exactly. Absolutely. I mean, 
And you're right. I mean, there's a moral injury there, isn't there? Mm-hmm. There really yes. is. There's a moral injury when you don't feel like the, and this is what I try to get across to our senior leaders, senior leaders, like if you don't have the back of your people, then that is a betrayal. And don't scratch your head when recruiting and retention is a problem, right? I mean, there's such a correlation there. Why that's a hard one, I can't figure out. But um, I hadn't thought, I mean, I'd thought about the moral injury, but not to that level where there's such deep regret because someone didn't move on it Mm -hmm. when they could have. You know, you want to talk about a real moral injury or tragedy, that next 9-11 you talked about, if it's one of these dudes, Mm -hmm. right? Well, remember, so when I went to Libya, I went to Libya to basically capture one terrorist. His name was Mukhtar Belmukhtar. Oh, yeah. He was the mastermind MBM. of our attack. Not only was he the mastermind of our attack, I had to watch our government frame another guy as the mastermind when my target did it. You know how frustrating that is. That must that have been is. maddening. Oh, it's, so, it's still maddening to this day that they still lie about it. And remember, that guy is locked up in prison in the United States for 22 years. So it's also just a misuse, another misuse, of our political system in the U.S. Yeah, and I'm sure he wasn't a good guy. Oh, he's a terrorist. So right, but, I'm but, not freeing him. No, but. But, 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 the, but the wrong guy and just wrong on every level. Boone, how about you? What, what needs to happen to, I mean, you could never fully write this, but, but like in your mind, what are some things that would need to happen to try to set this right? Yeah, I think... Uh, Sarah covered most of the courses of action as far as watch listing, um, actually hunting them down, bringing them to justice, uh, the ones that are in prison having access to them so we can debrief them to gather more information. All those things need to happen. Um, something for me personally also, though, is to just set the record straight. This wasn't a protest. It was, in fact, a huge, well-planned Al-Qaeda attack. Yeah, um... So true, man. And, and that narrative has got to be undone. Yeah. And you all are, I mean, you're, you're, I think, I think it's, I think you will. It's just going to take time. Um, let's, let's keep going into the future here. Mm-hmm. Um, as we think about all of these individuals that perpetrated this attack, they're not on the watch list. They are still out there operating. What keeps you up at night when you see what's happened in Afghanistan? You know that I think we're all in violent agreement that that there is a threat emanating out of that country that is probably worse than pre 9-11, although no one seems to either care or want to talk about it. But when you think about that, you think about what's happened, look at look at the the ISIS style attack that Hamas executed Mm -hmm. in Israel, you know, all of those things and whatever else. What's keeping you up at night, Sarah, like at a real granular level? What are you most concerned about as this perfect storm kind of lines up? What I'm most concerned about is we want to shift so bad to China and we're so fatigued from counterterrorism that we're missing what the terrorists are doing. Um, so true. And they're going to plan it. So obviously what's been most important for us is identifying the mortar team, as you can imagine. Of course. But one of our senior terrorists ended up, we found out around August, they're like, he's disappeared from Libya. He could be anywhere, but it might be Afghanistan. So we had to halt our mortar team investigation, right? Because we're like, we need to find him because if he's gone to Afghanistan, we need to be on him. So we had to shift resources to locate him in Afghanistan and to track him in Afghanistan. Um, And it's really scary because I don't think anyone would have known he showed up in Afghanistan if we didn't make the pivot and do it ourselves, right? So we're really afraid of this planning 
there's there's almost now 30 terrorist camps in Afghanistan, right? Six of them are suicide training camps. Thousands of terrorists have gone through them, and we have not struck these camps. So they are there doing their training. They complete their training. Complete autonomy. On. Complete autonomy. So where there's very senior leaders at these camps, and they're not even afraid of being struck. They're hanging out at the camp all day long. Could you imagine that ever in the past? Like a one or two of Al-Qaeda just hanging out at the camp all day. I mean, day. even in pre-9-11, <laughs> we kept bin Laden, we kept his head down, yeah. right? With, with Pred strikes and things like that. No, I, I just want to build on what you said, and maybe we can stay on this for a second. But, sure. you know, I, I see this too, is this this notion that somehow, you know, the, the generals and the policymakers are tired of not just counterterrorism, but counterinsurgency. And they want to get they want to get back to what big armies love to do, what the industrial military <laughs> complex loves to do, which is near peer warfare, mm -hmm. you know, set piece maneuver warfare, China, Russia. North Korea. And my issue with that is when you, just at a very basic level, you know, when you're looking at, at combat, at tactics, stra mostly strategy, and you look at your enemy, you know, the two things you always want to consider in, in the terms of a potential strike are will and capacity, right? And I, I, I'll grant you that China, Russia, they have capacity, like they, they have war fighting capacity, but do they have the will for a protracted war with the United States in a unilateral fight? I think not, right? Maybe set down the road, but I don't think that's there. But if you apply that same metric to ISIS, Al-Qaeda, do they have the capacity to, for, you know, for asymmetric warfare, large-scale attacks, local attacks? Absolutely. Do they have the will? I think they have the will more than ever. Oh, yes. I think the clarion call went out much like it did about the Soviets leaving Afghanistan when we abandoned our allies. And I think that clarion call has led to a, 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 a tub thumping, as we call it, in Appalachia, where I'm from, that everybody's coming to the park. Yeah, and what a lot of people don't realize, when Afghanistan fell, it actually united the terrorists, even. So, you know, we talk about the Hamas attacks almost like it's a separate thing. When, during the last two years, Hamas traveled to, Hamas fighters were training in Afghanistan. They trained in Kandahar province and Aruzgan province, Afghanistan. So everyone tries to, like, bucket these things. It's like, no. Afghanistan invigorated the whole terrorism base, and now all these groups, even Sunni and Shia, are coming together. It's like, how do we work together more as a global terrorist unit? As like a syndicate, almost. Yeah, yeah, and it, it's really scary, and people are ignoring that this, this come together is happening. I agree. Um, one other thing I want to ask you, and then, and then we can go to, to Boone on this too, but you, know, you talked about uh, al-Baghdadi. Mm -hmm. Right. What what was the organization that originally or that eventually came from his work? Mm -hmm. ISIS. Yep. You know, I mean, so even ISIS is, is I think, is it. And when you look at the style of attacks that Hamas employed on October 7th, to me, it seems much more ISIS like than than some of the traditional stuff we've seen from Hamas, Hezbollah. In, in, in over the years. What are your thoughts on that? I actually think the Hamas attacks is more Taliban-like than ISIS. It's just people don't get to see what the Taliban does because it's always been covered up. We yeah. never made them a designated terrorist organization. Now, right, if an Afghan tells you how the Taliban attacked their village, they'll come and kill your whole family. The press isn't reporting Taliban attacks. So yeah, I really, and it's really funny. We had a Benghazi terrorist, and he traveled to like Iraq and Syria and became the first Libyan to join the real ISIS. 
And then he took over like a whole province. And when he went to take it over, they're like, he's too strict. It's too horrible. And he said, I follow Taliban beliefs. This is a Taliban province to where Iranian Quds Force killed him. But that's what I'm saying. Like, it was the Taliban beliefs more extreme than the ISIS beliefs. Yeah, I, get, I, I agree with that. Uh, the only caveat I would make to it is that uh, Dave Phillips, uh, who worked at the outfit that you guys uh, come from, he, he always said that the ISIS attacks because of their local nature versus the spectacular nature, um, he said that they were more horrorism than terrorism. In other words, you know, looking at this this ability to go local, where people live, work, and play, um, but with, but internationally projected, you know, and that to me is terrifying. You know, it's whether it originates from Taliban, ISIS, or some hybrid, that this notion that terrorism is evolving into horrorism, mm -hmm. where people just at where they operate in their daily lives are now actually strategic targets. That's uh, that's some scary stuff. Mm -hmm. Boone, how about you? When you think about um, when you think about like how all this has evolved, um, what what is it that's kind of keeping you up at night um, with all of this? Well, like a lot of you guys already uh, touched on, um, what keeps me up at night is that our government has its focus on near peer, and we forgot about terrorism. Also, we don't understand terrorism after twenty odd years fighting the GWAT we still don't get what the Islamic extremist really is. Yeah. We like to put them in buckets. This is Al-Qaeda, this is ISIS, where in fact they might have different ideologies, but we've seen from our investigation that guys came from Al-Qaeda. They went to ISIS, they went back to Al-Qaeda. They're just getting in the jihad wherever the jihad is. Yeah, and there's a meta-narrative that drives them all, isn't there? Yeah, and I mean also there's a brotherhood. Yeah. We've actually, you know, it's really interesting in, in, in Libya, it really has been, I fought with you or my brother fought with you or my father fought with you and I'm going to back you on this, even if they did have to join ISIS to do it. Um, yeah. So we have to remember there's that, that cohesiveness that we cannot, we can't, right? If they fought in Afghanistan together during the Soviet era, and they still have those ties, yeah. it doesn't matter what group they're a part of, they can always reach out to each other. You know, when we were doing village stability operations, the group that we often drew from was Jamiat Islami, you know, J.I., mm -hmm. because of the fact that the one thing that seemed to transcend even religion was if you shared a foxhole with a guy, mm -hmm. you know, and we saw, you know, Tajiks and Pashtuns that would actually work together because they had served in J.I. together, right? And mm -hmm. I, I think that's what you're talking about. Is yep. that, and, and if we don't understand that, if we don't get below the waterline on that, we are, we are at a competitive disadvantage. Mm -hmm. All right, well, we're going to kind of uh, bring it back to um, final thoughts. Um, Boonham, I'll start with you. You have, and let's just assume that people are watching this that are senior leaders at the policy level, uh, political level, senior military, senior intelligence community members. I'm going to send it to as many as I can. What would you say to him about this, about what you've written in this book, about where we're going as a nation? What would be your message to senior leaders? Take responsibility. Own it. Own it, absolutely. That'd yep. be refreshing, wouldn't it? I can't even remember the last time I've seen that done, honestly, except for what, and, and for what you guys have done. Um, thank you. Sarah? I say do the right thing, right? Like... You know, if there's a terrorist threat, focus on the terrorist threat. If, if a policymaker comes in and says, that's not our focus right now, say, no, we, we're seeing the writing on the wall. Like, it is 
upon us to keep Americans safe, and we need to do that. Policymakers aren't hired to keep Americans safe, no. right? And for some reason, they have bled into the security and safety of our country, and all they want to do is get reelected. Stay in the office. <laughs> so, yeah, just do the right thing, please. Take personal responsibility, do the right thing. Kind of like the things we were taught in kindergarten. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, look, before we go, I got a little something for you all. It's not okay. much, but um, this is um, for, for each of you, uh, but for Boone and for Sarah, this is my book, Game Changers. We were talking about local you know, endeavors. Um, this is the, uh, the big, thick version, <laughs> similar to what you all, it took me about four Thank years to you. write it. Uh, and this Excellent. is the Thank abridged. You. This is the abridged version. Okay. Uh, it's for citizens to, to uh, just going local to defeat violent okay, extremists nice. there, and that's yours. And uh, Thank you I just so appreciate much. all the work and research that you all do. The, you have stuck your own neck out for your brothers, and and I know uh, their families must really appreciate what you're doing. I know I sure do. I consider you guys dear friends. Um, to anybody watching or listening, please pick up Benghazi. Know thy enemy. Give it as a gift. Um, the more that we can dig into this, the more that we can help ensure that justice is served uh, for the ambassador and those three heroes that fell that day and for those that were up on that roof and for all of those who stood up when nobody else did. So, Sarah, Boone, thank you both so much for being here. It means a lot. Thanks to all of you for watching. Um, and will you guys come back? Yeah, Absolutely. we'd love to. Some more? All right, cool. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everybody, for watching. We'll see you next time on The Rooftop.